Welcome to the show, everybody. This is your boy, Lo Jackson. This is the only you podcast where I like to do books based on authors who have been through a lot of different situations, but they've researched, learned, and written about their experiences, or they've come across certain types of brain activity or behaviors or personality traits that no one else has. And I like to share books with you that may encourage you to go out and read this book, at least dabble in it, and find the book, download it, look at it, read a little bit of it. I even have one book on this podcast I did that was, um, you know, Habits, uh, Habits You Should Know, you know, it was a New York Times bestseller, and I, I include books like that because there's people out there who have never lived when there was no technology. You know, they haven't seen people make coffee from scratch without a coffee pot. They've never seen um, their grandmother bake a pie by using a fireplace. You know, there are so many things out there that we could do now that people decide, they decided to be lazy and decided to take the technological route and put aside all the teachings that their ancestors strove so hard to pass down for generations. And not like, you know, sauerkraut. You know, people hate sauerkraut. Well, if you're German, you don't. Hopefully you don't. Um, but my ancestors would take a head of cabbage, cut the core out, fill the core with salt, and submerge it in water for up to five months. And it would ferment in there because... They needed. They knew their bodies needed the cabbage because the fermentation actually scrubs your veins. It's the only thing in the whole world that literally scrubs your veins and keeps you healthy. A lot of people don't know this stuff. So I try to do this podcast hoping that somebody will learn something you know vital in their journey called life that's going to help them help someone else because... Everything that happens to you in life, it's your story. The more you hide your story, the more you walk away from your story, the more you try to deny your past, the more apparent it'll be and the more it'll come up and the more it'll be around you and you not even know it. And um, today, I want to share with you guys a book called The Conduct of Life by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and I believe this is going to tie together nicely. I got a um, couple things I want to share with you. Um, I give this book, I mean, this author, if you've never heard of Ralph Waldo Emerson, I just want to ask you, um, can I get the address to the rock you've been living under so I can stop by and, you know, actually give you this book for free because it's one of the first books I had ever come across in my whole life. I mean, this guy was writing books. He's written 60 books in his whole life. He's a highly intelligent author. Um, he, he was more of an essay writer, though, everybody. Um, in school, they talk a lot about Ralph Waldo Emerson's writings because he was one of the greats. Um, Emerson was born, actually, in Boston, Massachusetts on May 25th, 1803. He was the son of Ruth Haskins and the Reverend... William Emerson, a Unitarian minister, he he was named after his mother's brother, Ralph, and his father's great-grandmother, Rebecca Waldo. Awesome! Ralph Waldo 
was the second of five sons who survived into adulthood. The others here uh, were William, Edward, Robert, Buckley, and Charles. Three other children, Phoebe, John, Clark, and Mary Caroline, died in childhood. Poor babies. Emerson was entirely of English, if I could talk, English ancestry, and his family had been in New England since the early colonial period. Emerson's father died from stomach cancer um, on May 12, 1811, and back in the 1800s, more people died from foodborne illnesses than any other disease, heart attack, cancer, stroke, or anything like that it was non-existent back then because, you know, uh, there weren't food safety laws or, you know, the FDA to make sure that we were getting foods that weren't going to kill us. There's, oh, back then they did so many things, like the, the name Cracker Barrel, like the restaurant Cracker Barrel. Man, if you knew what a Cracker Barrel was, ugh. You would never want to eat there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But Cracker Barrel, uh, so they used to build barrels and they would, um, you know, cook their crackers and bake them and then they would just throw them in these barrels. Well, the barrels had, you know, holes in between the wood and bugs would get in there and they'd get moldy or, oh, gross. It was disgusting the way it was described from what I had read. Kind of wild. Uh, yeah, but his uh, father died from stomach cancer, and it was probably from eating terrible foods, honestly. Um, it was less than two weeks before Ralph Waldo Emerson's eighth birthday. Um, Emerson was raised by his mother with the help of the other women in the family. His Aunt Mary uh, Moody Emerson, in particular, had a profound effect on him. She lived with the family off and on and maintained a constant correspondence with Emerson until her death in 1863. Sounds to me like she was a great aunt. I got a few of those. Emerson's formal schooling began at the Boston Latin School in 1812 when he was nine. In October 1817, at the age of 14, Emerson went to Harvard College and was appointed a freshman messenger for the president requiring Emerson to fetch delinquent students and send messages to faculty. Wow, so he was like a hall monitor, kind of. Uh, midway through his junior year, Emerson began keeping a list of books he had read and started a journal in a series of notebooks that would be called Wide World. He took out, jo uh, excuse me, he took outside jobs to cover his school expenses, including as a writer for the junior commons and as an occasional teacher working with his uncle Samuel and aunt Sarah Ripley in Massachusetts by his senior year Emerson decided to go by his middle name Waldo <clears throat> and everybody found him and he was wearing a red and white sweater you guys <laughs> where's Waldo I'm just kidding Emerson served as class poet as was custom he presented an original poem on Harvard's class day a month before his official graduation on August 29th, 1821, when he was 18. He did not stand out as a student and, he gradu and graduated in the exact middle of his class of 59 people. 
In the early 1820s, Emerson was a teacher at the School of Young Ladies, which was run by his brother William. He would next spend two years living in a cabin in the Canterbury section of Roxbury, Massachusetts, where he wrote and studied nature. In his honor, this area is now called Schoolmaster Hill in Boston's Franklin Park. And that probably went on to become his book called Nature. Not, not, I don't know that by fact. In 1826, faced with poor health, Emerson went to seek a warmer climate. I remember when he moved down there to Florida, I think. So, oh, sorry, oh, yeah, 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 South Carolina, that's right. He first went to Charleston, South Carolina, but found the weather was still too cold. He then went further south to St. Augustine, Florida. Yeah, and I learned this in uh, grade school where he <clears throat> took long walks on the beach and began writing poetry. While in St. Augustine, he made the acquaintance of Prince Achille Murat, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. Whoa. Dude, he lived when Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew was still around. That's crazy. Murat, it's M-U-R-A-T, Murat, was two years his senior. They became good friends and enjoyed each other's company. The two engaged in enlightening discussions of religion, society, philosophy, and government. Emerson considered Murat an important figure in his intellectual education. And we all need somebody out there um, to boost us into higher education. Had I been surrounded by people at a younger age that was, was of higher education, now... My mom actually went on to marry a guy that had edu he was educated, and I didn't understand it. My mom would always call him a college-educated idiot, but I get it, I get the reasoning why. It's like when you go to school and you learn about the world and you learn how things really are supposed to be, you you find out that um, the things that you were taught earlier in life aren't truly the way um, things are, and um, yeah. And, the, and today we're doing, I'm sorry guys, I lost my place and my train of thought there for a second. Um, I think that this book is a five-star read, honestly. I, I, I found it to be a really inf informative, wonderful book. Because, um, I mean, it explains the conduct of life. Like, why things kind of go the way they do. Um, there's maybe ten chapters here. One is fate. Two is power. Three is wealth. Four is culture. Five is behavior. Six is worship. And six, uh, worship was very important to Ralph Waldo Emerson. Like, he had joined the Unitarian Church and became a... He graduated from Harvard, I believe, as a Unitarian minister. And um, he wound up leaving the church there because of, um, I think, for philosophical differences. Um but, you know, we've all had trials and tribulations where we've had to leave and come back and, you know, certain types of jobs. Um, so, like, what I was telling you earlier, you know, my mom married somebody that was educated. So, I got to be around somebody that had some education. So, he always taught me, hey, you know, and one thing he did teach me, too, was don't be closed off. You know, I had friends that were drawing swastikas on their book bags and all kinds of other stupid stuff. And when he seen that, he's, he sat me down and let me know, you know, hey, I want you to know, dude, my mom's brother was shot to death, 
you know, during World War II and walked all the way back home to her, died in her arms, and that's when she came to America, is when he walked, you know, I guess like 70 miles with a gunshot wound just to tell his sister goodbye, and that's how he died, was in her arms. And man, he taught me so much stuff about culture that I went on to be... And he was always reading books, and I mean, one of the best readers I've ever met, honestly, <clears throat> was my stepdad. In 1826, faced with poor health, Emerson went to seek a warmer climate. I told you that he wound up moving down to Florida. And while in St. Augustine, Emerson had his first encounter with slavery. At one point, he attended a meeting of the Bible Society while a slave auction was taking place in the yard outside. He wrote, One ear therefore heard the glad tidings of great joy, whilst the other was regaled with going... Gentlemen, going? That's sad, you know. That's that must have been um really traumatizing to him. After Harvard Emerson assisted his brother William in school for younger women established established in their mother's house after he had established his own school for um Kemsford, Massachusetts, when his brother William went to uh Gutengen to study law in mid eighteen twenty four, Ralph Waldo closed the school but continued to teach in Cambridge until early 1825. Um, Emerson was accepted into Harvard um, Divinity School in late 1824 and was er, excuse me, inducted into Phi Beta Kappa in 1828. Emerson's brother, Edward, two years younger than he, entered the office of lawyer Daniel Webster. Who's Daniel Webster, you guys? All right, that's what I thought. He's a dictionary guy. Come on. <laughs> After graduating from Harvard, first in his class, Edward's physical health began to deteriorate, and he soon suffered a mental collapse as well. He was taken to McLean Asylum in June 1828 at the age of 25. Although he recovered his mental equilibrium, he died in 1834, apparently from long-standing tuberculosis. Another of Emerson's bright and promising young brothers, Charles, born in 1808, died in 1836, also of tuberculosis, making him the third young brother in Emerson's innermost circle to die in a period of just a few years. Emerson met his wife, uh, Elaine Louisa Tucker, in Concord, New Hampshire, on Christmas Day, 1827, and he married her when he was 18 Two years later, the couple moved to Boston with Emerson's mother, Ruth, moving them to help take care of Elaine, who was already ill with tuberculosis. Less than two years after that, on February 8th, 1831, Elaine died at the age of 20 after uttering her last words, I have not forgotten the peace and joy. Emerson was heavily affected by her death and visited her grave in Roxbury daily. In a journal entry dated March 29, 1832, he wrote, I visited Elaine's tomb and opened the coffin. Boston's second church invited Emerson to serve as a junior pastor, and he was ordained on January 11, 1829. His initial salary was 1200 per year, increased to 1400 in July, 
But with his church role, he took on other responsibilities. He was the chaplain of Massachusetts legislature and a member of the Boston School Committee. His church activities kept him busy, though during this period, facing the imminent death of his wife, he began to doubt his own beliefs. And I think as Christians or Muslims or Hinduists or Buddhists, I think in life when we experience so many deaths all at once, because I recently have had to experience this in the last couple of years, and it's it can really death can really dilapidate you and take your breath away for a long period of time. After his wife's death, he began to uh, disagree with the church's methods, writing in his journal in June 1832, I have sometimes thought that in order to be a good minister, it was necessary to leave the ministry. The profession is antiquated. And in uh, altered age, we worship in the dead forms of our forefathers. His disagreements with church officials over the administration of the communion service and misgivings and public prayer eventually led to his resignation in 1832. As he wrote, this mode of commemorating Christ is not suitable to me. This is reason enough why I should abandon it. As one Emerson scholar has pointed out, uh, doffing the decent black of the pastor, he was free to choose the gown of the lecturer and teacher of the thinker not confined within the limits of an institution or tradition. Thank you guys for listening. This is the Only You Podcast, and I'm talking to you right now about Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the great essay writers, um, theologists in America, I believe. He's written over 60 books in his time, and Emerson toured Europe in 1833 and later wrote of his travels in English traits in 1856. He left a broad and uh, bigger Jasper on Christmas Day in 1832, sailing first to Malta. During his European trip, he spent several months in Italy visiting Rome, Florence, and Venice, among other cities. When in Rome, he met with John Stuart Mill. And if you don't know who John Stuart Mill is, um, he was an English uh, philosopher, political economist, and he was also a uh, a member of Parliament. So that tells you a lot about you know Ralph Waldo Emerson. He actually um, he knew a lot of. Um, really well-to-do people, and he was inspired by these people. Emerson served as a class poet, as was custom. He presented an original poem on Harvard's class day a month before his official graduation on October 29th, 1821. He did not stand out as a student. Yeah, I think I read that to you. I told you about that. But this guy was really interesting, man. He lived a rough life, but he lived a, he lived a great life. Um, uh, You know... When he met uh, John Stuart Mill, who gave him a letter of recommendation to meet uh, Thomas Carlyle, which Thomas Carlyle is a uh, a Scottish um, essayist, historian, and philosopher um, during the Vic- yeah 
yeah, yeah, yeah. During the Victorian era. I find I find this to be a great read. I mean, hopefully you guys are learning a little bit from this and it's not boring you too much because I really wanted to read more about his life to you because I feel that in America we don't really you know, we don't we don't savor the people who have um written so many great writings for us, you know. We we just we forget about these people and it's it's terrible. Because now all these other writers are coming out and everybody's forgetting about all the great writings of 100 years ago. It's terrible. He went to Switzerland and had to be dragged by fellow pastors to visit Valtar's home and Fernie, protesting all the way up the unworthiness of his memory. He then went on to Paris, a loud modern New York of a place, where he visited the Jardin des Plantes. Jardin des Plantes was also um, known uh, as a... Uh, this uh, person was a botanical... Oh, this is not a person. This is actually a place in France that's a botanical garden. Interesting. But it's famous. It's a famous, famous garden there. <clears throat> um... I found that to be pretty interesting. He was greatly moved by the organizations of plants, according to um, Jesu's system of classification, and the way all such objects were related and connected. As Robert D. Richardson says, Emerson's moment of insight into the interconnectedness of things in the Jardin des Plantes was a moment of almost visionary intensity that pointed him away from theology and towards science. Moving north to England, Emerson met William Wadsworth. Who was William Wadsworth, you guys? He was an English romantic poet. Not everybody, you guys didn't know that. You gotta read to learn all this stuff. <laughs> um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Thomas Carlyle um, Carlyle, in particular, was a strong influence on him. Emerson would later serve as an unofficial uh, literary agent in the United States for Carlyle, and in March 1835, he tried to persuade Carlyle to come to America to lecture. The two maintained a correspondence until Carlyle's death in 1881. And thank you guys for listening. This is the Only You Podcast, and today I will be... I'm, I'm telling you about Ralph Waldo Emerson, a famous American writer, author. Um, and I want to read to you a little bit of, in the book of The Conduct of Life. And chapter one is called Fate. If, if chanced during one winter a few years ago that our cities were bent on discussing the theory of the age, by an odd coincidence... Four or five noted men were each reading a discourse to the citizens of Boston or New York on the spirit of the times. It so happened that the subject had the same prominence in some remarkable pamphlet and journals issued in London in the same season. To me, however, the question of the times resolved itself into a practical question of the conduct of life.
How shall I live? We are incompetent to solve the times. Our geometry cannot span the huge orbits of the prevailing ideas. Behold their return and reconcile their opposition. We can only obey our own polarity. Tis fine for us to speculate and elect our course if we must accept an irresistible dictation. In our first steps to gain our wishes, we come upon immovable limitations. We are fired with the hope of reform men. Excuse me. We are fired with the hope to reform men. After many experiments, we find that we must begin early at school. And we must, everyone. And that's not in this book. But if you don't start early, we get lost. And I know it happened to me. We get left behind and forgotten. But the boys and girls are not docile. We can make nothing of them. We decide that we... Excuse me. We decide they are not of good stock. We must begin our reform earlier, still, at generation. That is to say, there is fate or laws of the world. But if there be irresistible dictation, this dictation understands itself. If we must accept fate, we are not less compelled to affirm liberty the significance of the individual, the grandeur of duty, the power of character. This is true, and that other is true, but our geometry cannot span these extreme points and reconcile them. What to do? By obeying each thought frankly, by harping, or, if you will, pounding on each string, we learn at last its power. By the same obedience to other thoughts, we learn theirs, and then come some reasonable hope of harmonizing them. We are sure that, though we know not how, necessity does comport with liberty. The individual with the world, my polarity with the spirit of the times, the riddle of the age has for each a private solution. If one would study his own time, it must be by the this method of taking up and turn each of the leading topics which belong to our scheme of human life, and by firmly stating all that is agreeable to experience one, and doing the same justice to the opposing facts and the others, the true limitations will appear. Any excess of emphasis on one part would be corrected, and a just balance would be made. But let us honestly state the facts. Our America has a bad name for superficialness. Great men, great nations have not been boistered and buffoons but perceivers of the terror of life and have manned themselves to face it. The Spartan, embodying his religion and his country, dies before its majesty without a question. The Turk, who believes his dome is written on the iron leaf in the moment when he entered the world, 
rushes on the enemy's saber with undivided will. The Turk, the Arab, the Persian accepts the foreordained fate. On two days, it steads not to run from the grave. The appointed and the unappointed day. On the first, neither balm nor physician can save. Nor thee, on the second, the universe slay. The Hindu, under the wheel, is as firm. Our Calvinist, in the last generation, had something of the same dignity. They felt that the weight of the universe held them down to their place. What could they do? Wise men feel that there is something which cannot be talked or voted away. A strap or belt which girds the world. The destiny minister general that executeth in the world o'er all. <clears throat> the purveyance which God hath seen before. So strong it is that thou the world had sworn the contrary of the thing by ye or nay, yet sometime it shall fall on a day that fallen not oft in a thousand year, for certainly our appetites here, but it of war or peace or hate or love, all this is ruled by the sight. Above, that Chaucer's The Knight's Tale. The Greek tragedy expressed the same sense, whatever is fate that will take place. The great immense mind of love is not to be transgressed. Savages cling to a local god of one tribe or town. The broad ethics of Jesus were quickly narrowed to village theologies which preach an election or favoritism, and now and then an ambial parson like Jung, Still, or Robert Huntington believes in a Palestine province which, oh, you guys, a Palestine province, I believe, was a way of thinking before the Civil War. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's what he's talking about here. It was a mentality that people had before the Civil War, and they called it a province or, or providence. Which, whenever the good man wants a dinner, makes that somebody shall knock at his door and leave a half dollar. But nature is no sentimentalist, does not cost it or pamper us. We must see that the world is rough and surely. And will not mind drowning a man or a woman, but swallows your ship like a grain of dust. The cold and considerate of persons tingles your blood, benumbs your feet, freezes a man like an apple. The disease, the element, the fortune, gravity, lightning, respects no persons. The way of providence is a little rude. The habit of snake and spider, the snap of the tiger and other lepers and bloody jumpers, the crackle of the bones of his prey and the coil of the anaconda. These are in the system, and our habits are like theirs. 
You have just dined, and however scrupulously the slaughterhouse is concealed and the graceful distance of miles, there is complicity, expensive races, race, living at the expense of race. The planet is liable to shocks from comets, perturbations from planets, rendering from earthquake and volcanoes, alterations of climate, processions of equinoxes, rivers drying up by opening of the forest, the sea changes its beds, towns and countries fall into it, at Lisbon an earthquake killed men like flies, at Nepal three years ago 10,000 persons were crushed in a few minutes, the scurvy at sea, the sword of the climate in the west of Africa, at Cayenne, at Panama, at New Orleans, Cut off men like a massacre. And you guys, this was over a hundred years ago he was writing this. You know, we now have technology and we see all these devastations. People worried about these devastations back then. But this is Mother Earth. These devastations were created long before we existed here. The, the Lord of our lives created this place, you know. We gotta understand that stuff. Now, is this not a good read? This is one of the best reads I've read in a long time. I mean... I'm going to read more of this guy's writing just for the fact that when I read this, I had a lot of respect for this guy. He was like a wordsmith I had never met before. Without uncovering what does not concern us, or counting how many species of parasites hang on a bombay, or groping an intestinal parasite, or infusoratory biters, or the obscurities of alternate generations... The forms of the shark, the laborious, labrus, L-A-B-R-U-S, is a type of fish. I had no idea what that meant. The jaw of the sea wolf paved with crushing teeth. The weapons of the grampus and other warriors hidden in the sea are hints of furiosity in the interiors of nature. Let us not deny up and down. Province has a wild, rough, incalculable road to its end, and it is of no use to try to whitewash its huge, mixed instrumentalities or to dress up the terrific uh, benefactor in a clean shirt and white neckcloth of a student and divinity will you say the disasters which threaten mankind are exceptional and one need not lay his account for catalysts every day eh? but what happens once may happen again and so long as these strokes are not to be parried by us they must be feared but these shocks and ruins are less destructive to us than the stealthy power of other laws which act on us daily. An expense of ends to means is fate. Organization trianalyzing over character. The meaningful or forms and powers of the spine is a book of fate. 
The bill of the bird, the skull of the snake, determines tyrannically its limits. So is the scale of races, of temperaments. So is sex. So is climate. So is the reaction of talents imprisoning the vital power in certain directions. Every spirit makes its house, but afterwards the house confines the spirit. The gross lines are legible to the dull. The cabman is a phrenologist. So far, he looks in your face to see if his shilling is sure. A dome of brow denotes one thing, a pot belly another, a squint, a, pr a pug nose, mats of hair, the pigment of the epidermis betray character. People seem sheathed in their tough organization. Ask anyone, ask the doctors, ask quartets. If temperaments decide nothing, or if there be anything they do not decide, read the description in medical books of the four temperaments. And you will think you are reading your own thoughts, which you had not yet been told. Find a part which black eyes and which blue eyes play excuse me, with, uh, play severally, severally in the company. How shall a man escape from his ancestors or draw off his veins the black drop which he drew from his father's or mother's life. It's oft, it often appears in a family as if all the qualities of the progenitors were potted in several jars, some ruling quality in each son or daughter of the house, and sometimes the unmixed temperament, the rank unmitigated elixir, the family vice, is drawn off in a separate individual, and the others are proportionately relieved. We sometimes see a change of expression in our companion and say his father or his mother comes to the windows of his eyes and sometimes a remote relative. And you guys, I actually did a podcast last year um, on a guy, it's called It Did Not Start With You, and he talks about how generational curses are passed down. Like if your great grandpa was in, you know, uh, the war of 1812 and he came back home and he was angry because he suffered from PTSD, he could have passed that on to your grandpa and then your grandpa to your dad or your mom. Just saying. Thank you guys for tuning in to the only you podcast. And I'm telling, and I'm reading to you today a book by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and it's called "The Conduct of Life." And uh, chapter one of this book <clears throat> is called "Fate." And hopefully, you guys are you know learning a little bit because I know when I first read through this, the dude's words are just so powerful and like. You can't deny that the intelligence level is far beyond a lot of people's of today's, just by the wordology he uses. And I mean, he's definitely a wordsmith in my eyes. Um, oh, where was I at here? I lost my spot, you guys. Um, 
Read the description in the medical books of the four temperaments. Yeah, I read to you that. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, we sometimes see a change of expression in our companion and say his father or his mother comes to the window of his eyes. And that's what I was just telling you about. You know, it's passed on generationally. At the corner of the street, you read the possibility of each passenger in the facial angle, in the complexion, and the depth of his eye. His uh, parentage determines it. Men are what their mothers made them. You may as well ask a loom which weaves huckaback why it does not make cashmere as ex as expect poetry from the engineer or a chemical discovery from the that jobber. Ask the digger in the ditch to explain Newton's law. The fine organs of his brain have been pinched by overwork and squalid squalidity, uh, poverty from father to son for a hundred years, which each comes forth from his mother's womb, the gate of gifts close behind him. Let him value his hands and feet. He has but one pair. He has but one future, and that is already predetermined in his lobes. And you guys, lobes are in your brain, your prefrontal lobes and your frontal lobes and all your medial lobes, stuff like that. And described in that little fatty face, pig eye, and squat form. All the privilege and all the legislation of the world cannot meddle or help to make a poet or a prince of him. Jesus said, When he looketh on her, he hath committed adultery, but it, excuse me, but he is an adulterer before he has yet looked on the woman by the superfluidity of animal and the defect of thought in his constitution who meets him or who meets her in the street sees that they ripe to be each other's victim and certain men digestion and sex absorb the vital force and the stronger these are the individual is so much weaker the more of these drones perish the better for the hive. If latter, they give birth to some superior individual with force enough to add to this animal or new aim and a complete apparatus to work it out. All the ancestors are gladly forgotten. Most men, uh, excuse me, most men and most women are merely one couple more. Now and then, one has a new cell or camarilla open in his brain. That's a part of the brain. C-A-M-A-R-I-L-L-A. -L -L -A. An architectural or musical or a philosophical knack. Some stray test or talent for flowers or chemistry or pigments or storytelling. A good hand for drawing. A good foot for dancing. An athletic frame for wide journeying, etc. Uh, which skill... No wise alters rank in the scale of nature, but serves to pass the time, the life of sensation going on as before. At last, these hints and tendencies are fixed in one, or in a succession. Each absorbs so much food and force as to become itself a new center. The new talent draws off so rapidly that 
the vital force has not enough remains for the animal functions. Hardly enough for health, so that in the second generation, if the like genus appear, the health is visibly deteriorated and the generative force impaired. People are born with the moral or with the material bias. Euterian brothers, Euterian brothers, with this uh, div diverging destination, and I suppose with high magnifiers, it might come to be distinguished in the embryo at the fourth day. This is a wig and that a free soiler. Thank you guys for listening. This is the only you podcast. A good deal of our politics is psych psychological. Now and then a man of wealth in the heyday of youth adopts the tenet of broadest freedom. In England, there is always some man of wealth and large connection planning himself during all his years of health on the side of progress who... As soon as he begins to die, checks his forward play, calls in his troops, and becomes conservative. All conservatives are such from personal defects. They have been uh, effermented by position or nature, born halt and blind through luxury of their parents, and can only, like invalids, act on the defensive but strong natures, backwoodsmen, New Hampshire Giants, Napoleon Burkett's, uh, Brugham's, Webster's, are inevitable patriots. Until their life ebbs and their defects in gout and money warp them, the strongest idea incarnates itself in majorities and nations in the healthiest and strongest. Probably the election goes by um, avoid a protest weight. And if you could weigh bodily the tonnage of hundred of any hundred of the Whig and Democratic Party in a town on the Dearborn balance as they passed the Hay Scale, you could predict with certainty which party would carry it. <clears throat> and we have a lot of problems now in America with, you know, the Republican Party, the De Democratic Party and all this other stuff. And it's I found this to be kind of something I wanted to share with you guys was you know, his thoughts on politics because a hundred years ago, you know, more than a hundred years ago, they were still suffering from what we're suffering from today. We're just more aware of it today. In science, we have to consider two things, power and circumstance. All we know of the egg from each successive discovery is another vesicle. And if after 500 years you get a better observer or a better glass, he finds within the last um, observed another. In vegetable and animal tissue, it is just alike. And that's true. Because we, I mean, we're seeing that now because they're growing body parts inside of people's body with their DNA. And, you know, doing all kinds of different scientific stuff that they probably shouldn't be doing. Because they're honestly playing God. And I don't really agree with that crap. Because they ain't God for sure. And I wanted to tell you guys, I wanted to give you some coping skills. And today I wanted to read to you about, you know, the way we could raise better kids in America. 
And this is actually from the news from Texas A&M Health at the college, you know, down in uh, El Paso. Um, foster healthy relationships with food. Many parents are similar, or excuse, similar, wow. Many parents are familiar with the phrase picky eater. Definitely are. I have one daughter, she won't eat tomatoes, mushrooms, anything. Especially with regard to their young children. Parents should learn to talk about food in such a way as to prevent their children from becoming food restrictive. And I've always tried to do that with my kids. Clinical social worker at the, uh, oh yeah, says Amanda Faith, she was a clinical social worker um, at, with outpatient psychiatry. When introducing new foods, do not categorize foods as healthy or bad. Instead, parents should teach children the importance and value of nutrition and how to set limits. Because a lot of kids today, I'm noticing, they don't have limits. And and I have one kid, too, that if it is not in a box or a bag, he just thinks it's really not food and it's not healthy and it's not safe. And it's pretty interesting uh, the way kids think. And another one is create day-to-day -day consistency with your kids. It is important for parents to create consistent expectations and effectively communicate those expectations to their children. And I'm, re I'm, a, I'm including this stuff with um, Ralph Waldo Emerson's book because um, I felt like I got out, what I got out of his book is that, you know, sometimes we got to start early. We got we to gotta realize that having a kid isn't about, oh, it's just a, a guy that I'm going to hang out or a girl I'm going to hang out with. And no, you got to literally build a structure a system you got to have safety involved you got to be just on top of the game and a lot of people in poverty pass up the opportunity to develop a well-rounded kid because they socialize them way too much had i known that me bringing my kids around all my family members and that my kids were going to pick up little tiny traits from every single person that they were around because when they say a kid's like a sponge, they literally mean it. There's no joke. There are things that my kids do that I know exactly where they got it from. I know exactly when they got it. I can it's crazy. I, I can pinpoint family I can pinpoint family members that have passed on little traits to my kids I had no idea about and they only met them 3 times. It's crazy. I'm not even kidding. Um, you create a day-to-day -day consistency. It is important for parents to create consistency expectations and effectively communicate those expectations to their children. One thing that interrupts development in children is stress and related complications that come with stress. Yeah, and if you don't let your kids know that, hey, the way you're feeling is normal, I feel that way too, and we have to find little... Um, things that we use in our emotional tool bag along the way that help, you know, kind of fill in those little potholes when they arise in our road, on our road of life. You know, we got to learn to fill in the potholes. And unfortunately, stress is one of those things. Stress, anxiety, um, worry, you know, all those things. Um, another one is build a strong relationship. In addition to consistent expectations and routine, Parents should uh, remain consistent, positive role models as well. Parents should foster an open relationship with their children so they feel comfortable. Um, 
On a similar note, parents should ha- should be vulnerable around their children and express a full range of emotions to create a model for their children. Yeah, and I do, you know, and I tell my kids sometimes when I have bad days, you know, or outbursts, I say, hey, that behavior I just did in front of you ain't right. I was wrong. And I'm not afraid to tell my kids that my behavior isn't right because I want them to become better than me. And in life, if you're here living this life and you have so much knowledge that you're not trying to pass that on to somebody else, you're wasting time and you're wasting space because somebody out there needs that knowledge and they can't find it. And you retain it. So the more you withhold the information, the more our world struggles as a whole and society does not create great people they create more isolation more distance and you get what we got now and and i believe most of the situations are created by technology honestly i i know because i was living at a time when i had never seen technology and i lived at a time when i've seen technology take off and i've seen the change in people and i've seen the change majorly in behaviors and attitudes another one is um enable sound decision making and we all know those adults who can make decisions, although it is rarely de- um, detrimentally in- impact a day-to-day function. You know, although it rarely detrimentally impacts a day-to-day function, the act of deciding can go a long way toward making someone feel empowered. The social work team um, recommends parents allow their children a little control uh, during the day, whether picking their own outfits, the family movie, or a side dish at dinner, those decisions can help the child feel valued, important, and a part of the household. I mean, if you didn't do this stuff with your kids, how would they ever feel like they're a part of the family? I don't, I don't get that part. Furthermore, and, and this is a reading from um, uh, uh, the newspaper at Texas A and M. They had done. A report on it, and I found it to be um, kind of um, intertwined with that first chapter that I had just read to you. Um, give your child a choice of two things that are beneficial to him or her. If you need him or her to take a bath, then you could ask if he or she would rather brush teeth before taking a bath or take a bath before brushing teeth. You know, she, oh, excuse me, she also gives the example of asking if they would like to skip or walk to the bathtub. And that could be fun to a kid. That could be exciting. You know, and then it don't become like a job or a, a chore. And they say that about washing dishes as well. If when your child is young and little, you make um, dishes a happy, fun, singing, upbeat time. Your kid, in turn, will be like my kids. They get all excited when it's dish time. You know, they don't care about dishes. Dishes are fun. But it's a life skill that we're always going to have to have, and that's what we call them at our house is life skills. Um, Another one is maintain um, parental mental health. As a parent or caregiver, it is easy to become tired, overwhelmed, and stressed. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And... uh, Today, I, t- I read a book to you by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. And I am trying to give you some um, kind of coping skills to help raise a better, well-rounded individual because this tied into the first chapter 
of Ralph Waldo Emerson's book, parent or caregivers need to take time for themselves. If you cannot take time to care for yourself, then you will not be able to take care of another person. You know, um, here's a list of ways to maintain your mental health amidst, you know, chaos of parenting. Meditate for a few minutes at a time. Sit in your car after work or after an errand. Give yourself a few minutes to uh, get out of work mode into home mode. Go to regular therapy sessions and find ways to have fun and day-to-day activities. Okay? Another one is create an environment suitable for learning. Um, Much of children's learning happens outside of the classroom, so it is important for parents to support their children's academic growth. And I've always told my kids, you know, learning never stops after school. School just gives you, you know, a basis of how you could live your life and things you could do. And it teaches you a system. Clock in, clock out, take a break, do whatever, you know. But I have said this in other podcasts, too, about the two teachers who quit teaching. I think they were professors, actually. They quit um, teaching and took their 10- 11-year-old and bought bicycles, started in Alaska, and they rode their bicycles all the way to the tip of South America, but they taught their kids all the way, and both of them became like rocket scientists, and I think one works for the U.S. government now, but that was a pretty interesting story because it ties into, you know, teaching your kids that education and learning never stops, and and everybody's like, oh, you got to go to college. No, you don't. You need to start reading those books. Put that gadget down, and if you got that gadget in your hand, do what I do. I'm reading stuff. I'm learning stuff. I'm researching. I got folders where I add stuff that I want to tell you guys about or incorporate different things. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, This has been a great read, and I hope to God that uh, somebody out there will rush out and find this book and read it because, in reality, it was... It was one of the greatest reads I had read. I want to read some more of Ralph um, Waldo Emerson books just for the fact that he just, his, I mean, he's like a, a wordsmith I had never seen. And it just really touched my heart. Thank you guys for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Be good to yourselves. Be out there trying to relay this information to somebody else. Read that book, learn from it, grow from it. And you don't become educated by going to school. You become educated by doing the hard work and learning from people who have already been on this earth and lived this life. Don't get stuck in the facade that the, that this gadget in front of your face and the TV is building for you. Things are still the way they were a hundred years ago. They now just have a big facade around them. So be good to yourself. Continue to grow, continue to learn, and continue to read. Most importantly, this is your boy, Lo Jackson. Thank you for listening to the Only You Podcast.